0: Share with Jacob. Oh, you need the hymn. You have a handout on Ephesians, and then you also have a new hymn. Okay. And I told—I was joking with somebody over here. This hymn is so new that the author is still alive. So, so when people tell you, when people ask you if you do contemporary worship, you tell them, "You bet." Right. That is a funny thing. Contemporary worship. Um, Of course, any worship that is happening is contemporary. It is happening, so therefore it is in the moment. It is in the times, but that's not what people usually mean, so you can have fun with them. This hymn uh, is written by a man named Stephen Starkey. He's a a recently retired pastor up in, uh, actually, my kind of part of the country. My, My roots are in Bay City, Michigan, and his congregation was there. He's written many hymns. I think there's probably... Uh, 10 to 15 of them in our hymnal. Um, he writes, I, I think you'll, you'll see this when we read it here in a minute, the words are very vivid. And so the um, as you're singing, the image that you get as you're singing, I think this is one of the gifts that God gave him, is that he's able to give you this mental image of what you're singing about. Um, some of our hymns are very heavy on teaching. They're what we call catechetical hymns. okay, And that's good. You, need, you just need meat and potatoes sometimes. Um, but then one of the nice things about the hymns is that they are poetry and they paint a picture for you. And so just listen to this. Um, I'm just going to read it and then we'll sing it a little bit. Here's how Starkey uh, writes and you can, you can see things as, he, as he's writing them. In the shattered bliss of Eden dawned the day of sacrifice As our primal parents shuddered, sin had caused this dreadful price. Faith embarked with this discernment. Only God can cover sin. As he took their leafy garments and he clothed their shame with skin. What's this describing? What's the Bible story here? Garden of Eden. Eden, The fall into sin. And? They hid. They hid because they were naked. They shuddered. And what's the business with leafy garments and skin? Yeah, Adam said, I need to cover myself. So they used, um, they used leaves, and then God gave them animal skins. So the first death is the death of those animals that then clothes, covers Adam and Eve. So then it goes on, days and months and years unfolding clearly showed what sin had wrought. Fallen Adam's children learning lessons fallen parents taught. All these sacrificial offerings crested as a crimson flood, patriarchs and priests atoning for their sins with cleansing blood. What story is that? This is a trick question. It's the whole Old Testament. Yeah, but the you know you think of maybe the Nile River turned to blood, but this is like a description of the entirety of the Old Testament. It's all it's one big river of blood. Flo- it's, Certainly vivid, might not be our favorite picture, but it's certainly vivid. What these sacrifices promised from a God who sought to bless came at last, a second Adam, priest and king of righteousness, son of God, incarnate savior, son of man, both Christ and Lord, who in naked shame would offer on the cross, his blood outpoured. So just, isn't that beautiful? The way that he's able to tap into that, that um, they were naked and unashamed in the garden. And then Christ is crucified. He's exposed and ashamed, but we're covered by his blood. Um, Then he gets a sacramental connection, too. Lamb of God, once slain for sinners, host who spreads this meal divine. Here you pledge, our sins are covered. Pledge received in bread and wine. Take and eat, this is my body, given on the cross for you. Take and drink the cup of blessing. Is my blood outpoured for you? And the music, then... um, takes it kind of to the next. Those words are beautiful. You could put it to any music and it would be memorable. Um, But the tune here is a little bit tricky and we're going to sing it on Sunday. So I'm relying on all of you. You have to sing your hearts out on Sunday uh, to help the congregation. I'll sing um, the first two verses and then we'll try to do verse three together. Okay, so you'll hear it twice and then we'll try to do verse three together. In the
1: shattered bliss of Eden dawned the day of sacrifice. As our primal parents shuddered, sin had caused this dreadful price. Faith embarked with this discernment, only God can cover sin. As he took their leafy garments and he clothed their shame with skin. Days and months and years unfolding clearly showed what sin had wrought. Fall in, atoms for children learning lessons, fallen parents taught. All these sacrificial offerings crested as a crimson flood, patriarchs and priests atoning for their sins with cleansing blood. Let's all try it. What the sacrifice is promised from a God who sought to bless, came at last a second Adam, priest and king of righteousness. Son of God, incarnate Savior, Son of man, both Christ and Lord, Who in naked shame would offer On the cross his blood outpoured. I love that tune there at the end. It kind of builds
0: up as it goes. It's really great when the tune and the words uh, work so nicely together. It's like marriage. It's like husband and wife in peace and harmony. It's a beautiful thing. All right, let's pray, and then uh, we'll get into Ephesians. You can take that home, by the way, and uh, if you want to hear, hear that tune again before Sunday, just go on YouTube, search it. There's all kinds of recordings. They're, they're um, beautiful recordings to have, but let's, let's start with prayer. Lord Jesus, you have uh, atoned for our sins. You have provided for us the covering of righteousness and holiness uh, in your blood. And we pray now that as we, as we study your word, we pray that your spirit would enlighten that word for us um, so that we may receive from your holy word all that you would give us. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, uh, take out your Ephesians uh, handout and we'll get into Ephesians. Somebody said it was short. Who sa- who told me it was a short reading? Roxy, you said it was short. Um, it's short in comparison to Romans. It's long in comparison to Philemon. It's always relative on length. But um, if you sat down and read it through, I would guess you're looking at 20 minutes, depending on how fast you read, of course. Um, but if you if you just wanted to know, like, length of time. One of the nice things about um, news articles these days is that they tell you how long it's going to take you to read it. So when my dad sends me something that's going to take me 35 minutes, I can just, <laughs> okay, I read the headline. Thanks, Dad. He's retired now, so he can he can read those long articles. Um, but Ephesians, you're right. It's not, it's not considerably long. It's not, you know, like, wow, this is going on forever. Um, but it's definitely a um, it's definitely a bigger epistle than Philemon, so it's going to be hard for us to touch on everything tonight. Um, we certainly won't be able to do that, but I want to give you the big, the big theme of each of the epistles. Uh, I'm sure that, you know, if you ask me again in three years, I'll tell you, oh no, 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 that's not the theme of Ephesians. There's a different theme, um, but here's, here's what we're going to see, is that Paul, and this is true of all of his epistles, but especially in Ephesians, he's constantly saying this phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, Um, almost to the point where he's just throwing it out like a comma. Um, There are certain words in the English language that you can use as adjectives, nouns, verbs, right? Um, This is almost like that for the Apostle Paul being in Christ and what it means to be in Christ is, I think, what Ephesians um, is all about here. And we'll see that as we go, but um, just a little bit of background before we jump in. Um, One of the things that I've benefited from doing in this summer study is um, looking back and seeing how the stuff in the book of Acts comes up in the epistles, right? Um, It's almost like the author of Acts. Do we know who wrote Acts? Paul. Not Paul. Luke. Luke. Uh, the author of Acts is Luke. It's almost like Luke wrote the formative events of all these churches, and then you can find some parallel in the epistles. So here's how it works in Ephesians. We're not going to look through all of it, um, but if you turn to chapter, ni- if you want to read it later, um, chapter 19 in Acts is all about what did Paul do in Ephesus. Ephesus was a big Greek city, um, one, of the, one of the biggest ones. I can't remember if Corinth or Ephesus is bigger, uh, but those are both very prominent, um, high-powered cities. Uh, and you can see what he does there. The first thing, this is one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts because you read it and you just scratch your head. He gets there and there's already a church that was formed by a man named Apollos. And Paul goes up to them and he asks them this question. When you were baptized, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And their answer is, we've never heard of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> right? Imagine going, I mean, being a pastor, showing up to your first Sunday, hey, um, we're, we're, let's talk about the Holy Spirit. Who, who's the Holy Spirit? Huh? You know, kind of a big deal the third person of the Trinity, kind of important. Uh, but uh, the Holy Spirit is a big question for them because what Apollos was doing was baptizing in the name of John the Baptist. He was doing John's baptism. What's the problem with doing John's baptism if you're Apollos? Doesn't have Okay, that's not what Jesus said to do. That's not the baptism that's in force right now. There's one other one that's maybe simpler. How can Apollos do John's baptism? Because he's a John. <laughs> he's not John, right? So it's not, it, even if it was okay to still be doing John's baptism, which the time for that was over, that's only John's thing, you know? It's, so it has r- no real validity, no, vi- no real um, power. And so Paul says, well, you're not actually baptized then. And they, they're baptized, they receive the Holy Spirit. Um, yes. No, Apollos is not the Greek god Apollo. Different, different guys. But here's the, the takeaway for tonight. If, if Paul's first encounter with this church was, we've never even heard of the Holy Spirit, you can bet or you can probably imagine that that was kind of a big part of his teaching there in Ephesus. Um, it would be for me. If I showed up to St. Paul uh, fresh out of the seminary, or even as a seasoned pastor now of nine years, right? If I showed up and the first Bible class, people were saying, we don't know who the Holy Spirit is, Pastor. I think for the next 20 years, that would be <laughs> what we talked about, you know, all the time. Let's, let's make sure we understand this one. Yes?
1: Seems to be a kind of they didn't know about the Holy Spirit, what did they not know about
0: Christ? Well, yeah, there's, there's definitely, oh, if you don't know about the Holy Spirit... What do you know? <laughs> you know? And that's, that is one of the, the strange things is that we don't get the full picture. We just know there's a significant deficiency here. There's something crucial that's missing. And we're going to see that these two things and the connection of them, what it means to be baptized, what it means to receive the Holy Spirit, that's another way of getting at this theme being in Christ. What does it mean to be baptized? Well, it means I got wet, right? The pastor poured water on me. That's, that had to happen. That's the physical act. But what does it mean? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's very similar to asking, what does it mean to be married? Well, I could tell you about when I got married, right? Uh, but there's a lot more than just standing up in, at the altar and saying, I do. I barely remember that. Um, I don't know if you if you remember your wedding day. I was so nervous and caught up. I, I barely remember the service. I know it happened, uh, but and I, I remember the sermon because the pastor gave us a copy of the sermon. And I think he even said, "You guys weren't paying attention, so just read this, you know, on your an- <laughs> read this on your anniversary or whatever." And uh, now that I'm a pastor, I know that it's not just the bride and groom who aren't paying attention. Nobody listens at a at a wedding everybody listens at the funeral. Nobody listens at the wedding. (laughs) So that's what I try to say the most shocking things. Just, is anybody listening? We're going to try. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm, my mind is going a hundred places. Second thing that happens, that always happens in Acts, is he's speaking in the synagogues, and he comes across uh, some stubborn and evil-speaking enemies of the gospel. Okay, so we know that This is one of Paul's themes throughout all of his writings. What do we do with the relationship of Jews and Gentiles? And that's going to come up um, pretty big in the book of Ephesians. The third part of his stay in Ephesus had to do with exorcists and magicians. And so what you see there in Ephesus is that there's a lot of magical activity. There's a lot of magical interest. These are not just... um, you know, secular Greeks. These are highly religious people and they're all mixed up in all kinds of incantations and we're going to control the powers of the gods. And so Paul is going to have to write about how does Jesus, how does what happened in Christ shape the way we think about the unseen world, the unseen realm. Okay, um, the, third, the fourth thing here. Uh, not only does he face resistance from the Jews, but in the book of in Acts nineteen and in Ephesus, you get this really wild riot that happens because the Greeks are mad that Paul is threatening their temple. Um, one of the ancient wonders of the world—does anybody know? Have you played the game Seven Wonders? My boys love that game. Seven Wonders. The one of the wonders, the ancient wonders of the world, was in Ephesus. It was the temple of Artemis, Artemis of the Ephesians. And she was kind of, you know, if you, if you know your Greek myths, Artemis is the sister of Apollo. Apollo. She's the daughter of Zeus. Zeus and one of Zeus's wives. Uh, you know, he, it wasn't Hera. That, she's oh, always it's... mad about that. Leto, I think. Yeah. But anyways, Artemis of the Ephesians kind of stands in. She, they, they call her Artemis, but from the different evidence that the archaeologists have kind of uncovered, she was really the, the symbol of all the goddess worship. So almost like mother, the mother goddess was this Artemis of the Ephesians. And her temple was huge money. Her temple was big business. As you can imagine, if you had one of the ancient wonders of the world... People came to see it, and you could sell all kinds of trinkets and all kinds of stuff. And so these, um, these Gentiles get real upset about Paul, and they throw a big riot. And so what we see in Ephesus that I don't think we really see as clearly in other places is that Paul is opposed not just by the Jews, but he's opposed also by the Gentiles. And so um, remember our, our, um, when we read Galatians? Galatians is real fiery about the, the people who are seeking to be Judaizers. Ephesus is kind of the flip side of that. It's bad to be a Judaizer, but it's just as bad to be a gentle, Gentilizer <laughs> and to try to uh, bring the gospel back into Gentile. What we need is Christian, neither Jew nor Greek, but in Christ. And that's, the Jews have to lay aside their things, and the Gentiles also have to set aside their things. So you'll see that um, in, in Ephesians. The last two, um, not quite as significant, but they're there in the letters. When Paul goes uh, back to Jerusalem, he stops off in Ephesians, and he says, I need, or in Ephesus, and he says, I need to speak to the elders. And uh, it's in Acts 20 that you have this, this great speech to the pastors, Of the church, and so Paul in Ephesians is going to talk a little bit about what what are pastors for? What are they? uh, Comes up in other of his writings, but what are they for? That's a good question, isn't it? It's kind of like what what does it mean to be married? What does it mean to be baptized? What does it mean to be a pastor? It's a good question, isn't it, Hayes? Yeah. Um, So he's going to talk about that in Ephesians, and then the last one. This one's very interesting to me. When Paul gets arrested in Jerusalem. Remember what they charge him with? We can look at that one real quick. Go to Acts 21. Acts 21, verse 29. Here's what it says. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him, Trophimus the Ephesian, into the temple. So one of the things that they charge Paul with is, "You, you desecrated the temple because you brought one of those dirty Greeks into the temple, those uncircumcised heathens. And we find out here that it was a guy from Ephesus. So just put yourself in the shoes of the congregation in Ephesus. You hear that the great apostle, who was your pastor for two or three years, you hear that he got arrested in Jerusalem, and now he can't travel around anymore. And it turns out that the reason he got arrested was because one of your church members (laughs) was seen with him. Um, You know, you would probably feel a little bit of embarrassment like, is this Trophimus? What did you do? <laughs> how come? How come you got Paul? What did you do to get Paul arrested? There would at least be—I'm sure there would be some people who thought that uh, in the congregation. You know, Bill, how could you? You—you you went off to Jerusalem. You're supposed to help Paul, and instead you made him get arrested. Um, so one of the key parts then of um, of Ephesians that we're going to read tonight is that there's we all have temple access. We all have access in Christ to something better than the temple in Jerusalem. And Paul is going to have to write to them and say, hey, don't worry about my chains. My chains are not preventing me from preaching the gospel. Um, Don't don't get mad at Trophimus. Bill is Trophimus tonight, okay? Um, That's your middle name now, Bill. Don't get mad at Bill over here. He didn't do anything wrong, and God is even going to use this for good. Um, and in the book of Acts, the way that goes for good is that Paul gets to speak to those in high places. He's speaking to kings. He gets to go off to Rome, um, so he, even getting arrested, uh, kind of rebounds to glory uh, for the apostle, okay? Now, uh, if you look on your outline there, the basic outline goes like this. The first chapter is a a couple of prayers, two prayers, and we'll read one in a minute. They're beautiful prayers. You get a sense of um, what would it be like to hear Paul pray. If we were part of a congregation where Paul wrote the hymnal, where he, where he designed the liturgy, what would our prayers sound like? And we'll, we'll look at that in a minute. Um, but then in chapters 2 through 6, you have what I've listed out there as the proofs so we're going to look at the theme verse in a minute, and then the rest of the book is pretty much proving the theme. And some of those proofs are going to be positive statements, and other of those proofs are going to be um, kind of refutations or some kind of uh, something that comes out of that theme verse. Right? Then at the end, if you flip over the conclusion is this great passage that you probably know called the Armor of God passage. Um, if you look at Roxy's shirt, she's got the St. Paul crest on there. The sword of the spirit, right? The spiritus gladius in Latin is how you say that. Um, that, is, that comes up here in Roman at the end, not Romans, at the end of Ephesians. So that's a very famous passage, uh, and it's good to know where it is in Ephesians, okay? So that's the, the big picture outline. Open up then to Ephesians, and let's actually hear uh, some of the word of God there in Ephesians. Ephesians is right after Galatians, right before Colossians. No, right
1: before
0: Philippians. Oh, I'm sorry, right before Philippians. Thank you. Good to have you here to correct me, Sam. Keep it up. Keep me honest. All right. So, if you look at uh, chapter one, we're going to read verses three through fourteen, and you have to take a really deep breath here. Um, one of the one of the things that doesn't always come through in the translations is just how long St. Paul's sentences are. Um, if you were in a grammar teacher, you probably you know you you'd have you'd have to hold yourself back uh, from correcting the Holy Spirit. Because you would say, that's a run-on sentence. You, people can't handle that. You've got to put a period in there. You've got to let people catch their breath. Um, to which Paul would say, forget it, forget it. We're not... Um, the Holy Spirit doesn't pause, exactly. The Holy Spirit just goes. Um, so verses 3 through 14 in Greek form one gigantic sentence. And it's one beautiful prayer. So, we're going to hear the whole thing. I will take breaths as we go. Um, but just listen to this great prayer. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Great prayer, isn't it? Beautiful prayer. Um, I think that if you're looking for how to break this down, how to see a little bit of the structure here, Um, A lot of times, liturgical prayers follow a certain structure. Um, You know we call the prayers that we speak in church, they're called collects. You know why they're called collects? The collect of the day? It's Yeah, well that's kind of the thought. We're collecting things together. We're collecting, you might say we're collecting all, we come into church and we've all got different thoughts on our minds and they need to be unified, so we're all kind of collected into one prayer. it's It's a focus point, right, a collection. It's also, some of them come out very clearly, but the collect is meant to collect all of the themes for the day into one kind of brief, coherent statement. Um, sometimes they do that really well, like on Easter Sunday, everything's about the resurrection, right? But when it's the 12th Sunday after Trinity, it's a, it's a little bit harder to say, what's exactly the theme of the service today? Um, and in any case, that's why it's called a collect. But there's a certain form that those collects follow. Um, there's always an address to God, O oh, Heavenly Father. There's a rationale, who has given us every good thing in Christ. Then there's the petition, grant to us faith and hope and love. And then there's the purpose, so that we may endure to everlasting life. And then there's the termination, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, So that's the collect form. And if you can learn that form, it's actually kind of helpful, because then if somebody says, hey, will you pray for me, like out loud right now? You don't have to say, ah. (laughs) <laughs> I, we don't do that. <laughs> That's not a Lutheran thing. We pray quiet, silently. Right? You, you, if you have a form, you're, a little, you're able to bring your thoughts to some focal point. Right? Um, and what we see here in Paul's prayer, this is a very common form of prayer um, that starts this way, blessed be. So this is the way that a lot of, of the Jewish prayers that we have still literature of, they start this way. Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. We could look back in, I think in Daniel, there's an instance of this. There's another spot that I didn't write down, probably should have. But this is called uh, the Barakah. From the Hebrew word Barak. Barak. I know that's not everybody's favorite name, but Barak is a beautiful name. It means bless, to bless. If you're blessed, you, are, you have a barakah ber- on you. Okay? Now, this might, might be something you've never thought about, but we understand right? God blessing us. Why do we bless? What does it mean for man to bless God? Let us bless the Lord. Okay, there's a connection with Thanksgiving, right? To bless God means to thank him. What else? There certainly in the Old Testament, there were sacri- part of the sacrifices were blessings. Why do we need to do it? Is God, you know, we we need blessings from God because we lack something. Right? If I lack money, I can say, "Lord, bless me with a good job." But God is not lacking anything. So when we bless him, we aren't giving him something he doesn't already have. So why do we do it? I think
1: just to give thanks to him for what he's done
0: for us. Why should we do that? Does God, does God need us to say thank you? Does, is he waiting? Yeah, everyone wants to be appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now this is, okay, this is a great point. Did you hear what Kay said? Everyone wants to be appreciated. That's true. But is God like us? Well, there's maybe an analogy, but there's also a, there's a pretty hard division between the Creator and creature. So we don't want to just say, well, we need it, so God must need it. And, you know, I like to be appreciated, so God must like to be appreciated. Um, I think there is some truth to that, but why else? Why is it important that we actually out loud bless the Lord and thank God? If it's not because He needs it, who else? What, what, else, what other good does it do? Yeah, you, you need to out loud say, thank you, God. Because if you don't, what, what's going to happen to you? You're going you're gonna to become crazy. You know what crazy people think? Crazy people think that everything they have comes from themselves. This is, this is what sin does to us. It makes us crazy. It makes us blind to reality. And so part of the reason that we worship and pray and give thanks and bless God, is so that we remember, I'm dependent on him, okay? So part of it is just to express that dependence um, and to express the, that God is good. Um, the Greek word for berakah is this, you've seen it before, eulageo, I bless. What English word do we get out of there? To, and what does it mean to eulogize someone? S- to say good words about them. Yeah. So you can, if you give a eulogy, you have to say good things about the person, right? Which that might be the challenge, right? Uh, but to say good words about God is easy because He is so good, right? He is the definition of goodness, and the speaking out of these things is. It, it reminds us, but it's not, even, you know, it's not even just, well, I have to say this so I don't forget. I have to express it in order to, I think somebody said, appreciate it more fully. Right? Um, if I don't use my voice to bless God, there I might know all the right things. I might know all the right stuff. But until I my own voice says it, I'm missing out on somehow participating in that. Um, and so that expression is important. Isn't that relationship expression the same between husband and wife, parents and children? I don't mean the same on a God level, but you can love your husband and never tell him that, assuming that he's supposed to know that. Yeah. In the same way with your children or your friendships. Right. Yeah, it's very important. To, uh, words of affirmation are, um, if you've ever read the, who's the marriage guy, um, talks about the five love languages. Um, but one of, one of the ways that people give and receive love is through words of affirmation. And for some people, that's not, you know, that's not super important. You know, some people say, eh, I know you love me, you don't have to tell me. Um, but for other people, it's like that, if I don't hear the words, then I don't, you can do everything else. But if I don't hear it, I don't feel that love. I don't receive that love. So um, that's all just kind of in the background here, why this blessing of God is so important. But look in, I think if you look for a, a structure here, if you look at verses 3 and 4, you have a, a heavy emphasis on God the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has done all these things for us. He has blessed us in Christ with every I think that should be a capital S. Every Holy Spirit blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us, we're going back to the Father here. But then verses 5 through, um, five through 10 shift to the Son. So we've got from the Father to the Son. And we end up in the prayer with mention of, look what it says in verse 13. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So this Trinitarian structure, it's not a collect. St. Paul doesn't follow a collect form like we do, but it's a Trinity form. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Right? Um, the plan of redemption, the achieving of redemption, and the application of redemption. The plan, the carrying out, the application with all three persons of the Trinity there. Okay. Um, now, right in the middle, look at verse 10. I think this is, this is what I'm going to put for you as the, um, the theme of the epistle is this. The plan for the fullness of time. Doesn't that seem like that should be the theme? That sounds like a pretty big deal. Here's, here was God's plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. So, somehow, in Christ, everything is united. Everything is affected by Jesus. Everything has some reference to him, and everything is in harmony around him somehow. And if it's not, if it's out of connection to Christ, then it's out of harmony. So, why did Jesus come? He came to save you individually, but the plan of redemption doesn't just include me and Jesus, or even just you and Jesus. It includes everything, the, the whole universe. The whole thing is somehow tied up in Christ, right? And he's going to unite everything into harmony. Now, in terms of the city of Ephesus, we're probably speaking here about these things in particular, right? How are these Greeks and these Jews ever going to get along? How are we going to bring these people together? What could possibly unite Greeks and Jews? Hasn't God been trying to separate them out? You know, that was kind of the point of circumcision, cut off the flesh. That was kind of the point of a lot of those laws in the Old Testament, stay away from the Gentiles, have nothing to do with them. So how are we going to unite what seems to be purposely divided? And that, uh, for that, let's look at chapter 2. Okay, So we got that beautiful prayer. And then um, chapter 2, this is probably all we'll be able to do tonight. Um, But who would like to read for us? We're going to divide it up into two sections, verses 1 through 10 and then verses 11 through 22. Go ahead, Mike, nice and loud, 1 through 10. So think of this theme of unity. What is everybody united in here? Yeah, you, we were all children of, of wrath. And when Paul says you and we, think of it oftentimes, not always, but often he's doing you Gentiles and we Jews. Not that he still doesn't believe in Jesus, but he's doing that kind of ethnic thing. You Gentiles, you used to walk about in, under the prince of the power of the air and so did we, in our own way. We Jews used to do all the same stuff. So we, even though we were divided by the law, even though we were divided by circumcision, um, we were united in this one thing, sin. We were all together, <laughs> right? We were all on the same team. Yes? No, mister lejeune Lejean's got to keep going. Keep going, Mike. Uh, verse, where did I cut you off? Verse 4. By grace you have been saved and raised up, raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Okay, so now we're united in sin. What else are we united in? We're the same grace, right? United in Christ. We are somehow joined in a resurrection with Him. We're raised up with Him. And Paul doesn't even stop there. This is one of the great things about Ephesians. Um, we are raised with Him and seated up with Him. Where is Jesus seated? at the right hand of the Father. And Paul says, Christians are there too. Now, this is a head-scratcher because we're all sitting here. (laughs) How can we be there and here at the same time? Okay, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, But the last thing that he says, this is great, he returns to where he started. This whole passage, chapter 2, it's like you're going into a middle point. This is something called a chiasm. It's a, it's a structure of how things are laid out. You start at point A, you go to B, C, D, and then you come back out. C, B, A. A, B, C, D, C, B, A, right? Look where it ends, that we should walk in these good works. Where did it start? Who was walking around in, in verse 1? We were walking around in trespasses and sins. Now, in verse 10, we're walking around in good works. So we were united in sin, all humanity shared in sin. We're united in grace, and now we are united in this new life, this new walk. This is a great description of the whole kind of Christian life. I think that's why those verses, especially verses 8 and 9, right? those are beloved verses by a lot of people. By grace you have been saved, through faith. This wasn't your own doing, right? It's not that you worked up faith somehow. It was all a gift. Um, and even the new life that is prepared for you is part of that gift, too. Okay? So we're united. How does Christ unite us? Well, he unites us in him. We still don't know exactly how that happens. But we're united in him, and we have this new kind of life, the Christian life. It's not the Jewish life. It's not the Gentile life. It's a third thing. It's the better thing. It's the Christian kind of life, okay? Now, let's keep reading in chapter 2, and uh, he's going to continue on with this newness of life. What does that look like here? And uh, 11 through 22, So all kind of forms one big section here. Who would like to read this? Go for it, Sam. You've got to read it from Christ, alienated, alienated.
1: alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without
0: God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus,
1: you who once were, so, were far off have been
0: brought near by the blood of Christ. So listen to all that language there about being a Gentile. You were cut off. You were alienated. Um, think about the theme here is in, being in Christ. This is all kind of, it makes us think of a location. To be cut off, separated, alienated. We're outside here, right? It's almost like Christ is a place. He's a location. And I'm on the if I'm a Gentile, I'm on the outside looking in. And I'm not allowed to get in there. Right? Um, the wall is thick. The wall is high. I can't get in. I can't get into Jesus. Okay? Um, now verse 14. Did I, did I stop you at verse 13 or 14? 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, see again the location language. You who once were outsiders have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Who's the us here? You, Jew, you Greeks and us Jews. We've been brought together, um, made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Okay, so again, picture that location idea, right? The Gentiles were on the outside. Where were the Jews? On the inside, right? They were close. And they took that as we're superior. We're better than those outsiders, right? The point was always that those who were inside the temple would be serving for the good of those who were on the outside. But it goes bad when the insiders think, we're so much better than those nasty Gentiles out there. They're so gross, right? Um, I'm so glad that we're separate from them. And so what ended up happening, the Jews, if you um, know kind of the history of the Old Testament, they got more and more exclusive to the point where the Gentiles weren't even allowed to come into the temple. Um, in the Old Testament, there was never a law that said Gentiles can't come and worship. In fact, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. Right? But the Jews said, no, that can't, that's not right. <laughs> they're, they're too gross. We've got to keep them out. And so they had this wall all around the temple called the Soreg Wall. It was probably about this high, and there were signs that said any Gentile found inside this wall will be put to death. So talk about hostility, right? Um, if you come in, we'll kill you, right? You thought Lutherans were, were inhospitable people, right? We're, we're nothing like that. Um, but what, what he's saying here is that Christ comes and breaks all that down, now we could understand the okay all those additions to the law but what about the law itself there are divisions in the law itself there are places where God says you you can't have dealings with the gentiles you don't eat the things that they eat you don't wear the clothes that they wear you don't do the stuff that they do and is it can Jesus break down even God's own law and of course, the answer is yes. When Jesus comes, he is like, think of it this way, he's the, it's like the law come to life. The word becomes flesh and dwells among us. Well, that includes all that law. And when Jesus is crucified, it's like the law is being destroyed there on the cross. Now, this makes us a little bit nervous, doesn't it? Because if the law is gone, what does that mean for us? No rules, just right, Chuck E. Cheese. And I preached a sermon against Chuck E. Cheese once uh, that said, that's chaos, right? Life without rules, life without law is hell, right? So if we don't have the Old Testament law, what do we have? Well, remember, Jesus is the law in person. He's crucified, abolished, destroyed, but he doesn't stay dead right? He rises again. And when you rise with Christ, you are no longer under the law of the Old Testament. Now you are where? In Christ. And in Christ, you have a whole new kind of perspective on the law. So we don't resubmit. We don't go back to the Old Testament and say, you know what our society needs? We just need to republish Deuteronomy, right? Um, we need to take all the laws of the Old Testament and enforce them. That might sound attractive <laughs> when you live in a lawless world, but that's not the Christian answer. The Christian answer to, these, to a lawless world is to say, how does Christ show us the law? And so even though the law is no longer over us, it still serves us, it's under us, or it's in, we are in the law, and we learn from the law, the will of God. Now, that will is permanent. God's character doesn't change, but the times do change. And so there are changes in the law. Can you think of a good example of even something like the Ten Commandments? How do the Ten Commandments take on a new perspective when you're in Christ? Okay, there's a different motivation, certainly. You're not, I don't have to do this to earn my justification. Right? I can do it out of love. Think about the things like the Sabbath day, right? Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Is that still law for us? Obviously not. Well, it, it, it's not in the same way it was for them, right? But it's still, there's a principle there that carries over. So this is, there is... Um, discontinuity between the law of the Old Testament and the law of Christ, but there's some similarity. So I think our catechism gets this pretty good, right? I know that shocks you to hear me say that. But when Luther explains the the third commandment, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, do you know what he says? We should fear and love God so that we do not mow our lawn on Saturday, right? He says we should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching and his word but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. So the honoring of the Sabbath day is about the honoring of the Word. Now, that was there already in the Old Testament, but all that other stuff about, um, you know, make sure you don't take so many steps, that was all Pharisaical stuff, but those things have been abolished. Even though the law... I know it sounds like I'm kind of talking out of both sides of my mouth, right? The law is gone, but it's also not gone. Christ has defeated the law, but that doesn't mean Christians are lawless people. What it requires is, this is the challenge, it requires maturity. And I know this, I talked about this last week with Philemon, um, but it's, it's worth repeating again because it's a good point. Um, think of your children. When they're little, you give them all the rules, And they don't have to understand the rules. In fact, it's better when they don't. Just do it, right? And every kid goes through the phase of, but why? But why? But why? And eventually, what do the parents say? Because I said said so, right? But you also know that you want your kids to get to a point where they do what? They don't just say, I guess I have to do this. But they say, I I want to do this. And I see why mom gave me that rule. I see why dad gave me that rule. And even though, well, it doesn't come until you're 30. It doesn't come until they have their own kids. Yeah. Um, But this is an important thing for Christian growth, is to say, how does the law, how can I see what the law was always aiming at and apply it now? Because the times now are much different than they were then. Right? The other thing that's helpful to see is, we have examples of the apostles doing this. That's what the epistles are doing. St. Paul doesn't just say, hey, Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen. Now we can make up our own rules, right? He actually shows you, Here are, here's how you do this. Um, and if you flip in Ephesians, if you just go to, say, chapter 4, look at verse, chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their igno- ignorance, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you have learned Christ. And then he's going to go on, look down to verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your neighbor. Uh, Yeah, do not let your sun go down on your, where does it say? (laughs) Anger. You see, what he's doing here is he is showing you this is how we think about the law now. We don't just say anything goes, the wild, wild west, Chuck E. Cheese. We say, we, we know what the law is all about. It was always about Christ and love, and so we aim for those things. So there are some guardrails, so to speak, um, so that you don't go out of control and say, hey man, the times are different now, so we don't have to follow those old-fashioned rules. We can do whatever we want. Um, but there is that need for maturity for Christians to grow up and say, hey, God doesn't give me Every rule for every moment of my life. I have to figure it out along with Christ. Uh, Go back to chapter 2. We'll just finish up that chapter there. I think we're at the end of our hour. Yeah. Where did I leave off? I left off in verse uh, 16, I think. I thought
1: it was
0: 14. He created a new man in place of the two, so making peace. Verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. So now you get, okay, not only what has Jesus done, but how does it get to me? And what's part of the answer here? Verse 17, he came in, so it's through preaching, through preaching, all this stuff, the breaking down of the wall, coming in from the outside to be on the inside, this is how it gets to you. We call this the means of grace. Christ has come as God's grace, and now it has to get applied to me. What he has accomplished has to be applied. So he came and preached peace to you who are far off. Your furnace and peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the temple. I would expect him to say temple, right? But what does he say? You have something better than the temple, you have access to the Father. So then you are no longer outsiders, strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. That's Remarkable, God is dwelling in you, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now that you is plural, you, so we're talking about a corporate thing here, um, but it also has individual application. If God dwells in his members in the church, he also dwells in the individual member of the church. But if you take yourself, right, just imagine here a temple, any structure will do. You could think about St. Paul's. If you take that stone out of the wall and you say, man, this is a glorious stone. It's part of the temple. And you take it home and you put it on your, uh, you know, on your mantle so you could always have a little piece of the temple. Well, now what do you have? A stone. you got a stone. And it's not really part of the temple anymore, is it? So it always. we need both of these things. We need the corporate life of the church and the individual life. Christian life. These things always belong together. And um, the more, the stronger that corporate thing is, I think that this is what I've found in my life, the more I'm connected in with the body, the church, the stronger that individual life is. Um, But when it, when that individual rock gets taken out of the temple, it starts to feel pretty lonely. uh, And it starts to be pretty hard to say, what am I, what am I here for? (laughs) What, am I part of anything? Well, yeah, you're supposed to be part of the temple. Get connected. Get put back in. Okay, questions or thoughts here? We're at the end of our time, so we'll stop on that. There's much more in Ephesians. There's lots of of beautiful stuff in there. Um, There's so many things that I I skipped. Next week, we'll go into Philippians. Philippians is called the Epistle of Joy, and you'll see why. Um, But we'll do Philippians next week. We're not going to do 2 Thessalonians. I think we're going to do Philippians and then uh, Titus. And that'll be the end. We're not going to do the Timothys. Hebrews? Not going to do Hebrews. Next summer, we'll do do everything we didn't do this summer. Okay, let's pray, and then uh, we can head home. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Um, We bless you. We praise you that you have, uh, before the foundation of the world, you have in love predestined us and in the fullness of time you have sent your Son who has come to save us and that now you seal us through your Holy Spirit, uh, mark us as your own. We pray that um, as we have become part of your temple that we may um, lead lives that praise and glorify your name. We pray that our life together as the church here at St. Paul in Paducah would honor you, um, that we would be a dwelling place fit for you, um, where many others are brought uh, from far off to be close to you and to feel your love and know your power. Bless us now as we go to our homes. Give us a quiet night. Give us peaceful sleep and joy in our work tomorrow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.